are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. You're listening to the Today in the Word Radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993, and on Friday, a message he delivered at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Now, here is Tony Evans on Today in the Word Radio. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Because you see, then you will prove the will of God, that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. Because you see, spiritual maturity is guaranteed, but it is not automatic. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that the truth of these two verses, of Romans 12, 1 and 2, will be applicable to our experience, that we might incur and understand our responsibility for spiritual development so that the grace of God may not be vain to us, but that we might have the privilege of rejoicing as we see it unfold in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul, the apostle, gets to the heart of the matter of our responsibility to take the grace of God that has been granted to us and maximizing its potential in our our experience. You see, only as we execute, apply, follow through on, the deposit that has been made to us by the grace of God, do we come to realize and benefit from the marvel of that grace? The grace of God is like the Encyclopedia Britannica, multi-volume set covering every major topic known to man. But think about it. The Encyclopedia Britannica was developed only using 26 letters. 26 letters was all that was necessary in order to produce that voluminous volume of academic knowledge. The reason why it was possible to produce an Encyclopedia Britannica with only 26 letters is because of the flexibility of the letters. They can be so arranged and rearranged, consonants with vowels and many kind of configurations that every subject in the world can be discussed. The grace of God is our Encyclopedia Britannica. God has deposited in that grace the flexibility to be able to deal with anything that comes into your life or my life, but unless those documents are used, 
then they become valuable information on a shelf of little value to the researcher. Paul tells us our researching responsibilities in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What we must do if we are to benefit from, if we are to experience, if we are to see worked out in our experience that grace so that we find ourselves in the will of God. You know, as a student, you're probably vitally concerned about the will of God. Where does God want you to minister? Who does God want you to marry? On and on. But the good news of these two verses is that you really don't even have to look for the will of God anymore. But you do have to locate God, and when you find him, his will finds you. There are three statements made here that we want to look at, three concepts in these two verses, to see work out in you God's marvelous grace and the accomplishment of his perfect will. The first thing, if you are going to cooperate with the grace of God, is to understand that God demands all of you. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. All of you must belong to all of him if all of him is to be realized through all of you. He must own you lock, stock, and barrel. You must be willing to place in his hands all that makes you who you are. He uses the word body because anything you do must be done through that vehicle. Any teaching you do must come through those lips, places you go, through those legs, things you touch, through those hands, concepts you develop through that mind. He must have access to all of you. It's not like the story of the chicken and the pig who were walking down the street one day and came to a grocery store and there was a sign on the window that said, bacon and eggs desperately needed. Chicken looked at the pig, pig looked at the chicken, chicken looked back at the pig and said, hey, why don't we help the guy and give him some bacon and eggs? I give him some eggs, you give him the bacon. Pig said, you crazy. (laughs) You done lost your mind. Chicken said, what's the problem? Pig said, for you it's a contribution, for me it's the whole thing. (laughs) And you know, a lot of Christians want to give God an egg here and an egg there. Here an egg, there an egg, everywhere an egg, egg. That's not, that's not exactly what God is after. He wants the pork. God is concerned to have the whole thing. He is concerned that in order to give him any part, he'd have to get the whole thing to get to it. Present your body a living sacrifice. Now that's a contradiction in terms actually because Paul is using Old Testament thinking to inform his New Testament theology and there is no such thing as a living sacrifice. By virtue of the sacrificial system, in order for something to be a sacrifice, it had to die. When a sheep or lamb was slaughtered at the altar, when a sheep was put there and its throat was slit, to be an offering, trust me, it went bad, bad, no more. It became a very dead sacrifice. What does Paul mean when he says that we are to become living dead things? 
living sacrifices. Well, if Paul were here, he would probably just quote one of his other verses, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live. I'm alive. I'm confused, Paul. You said you were dead, now you say you're alive. What do you mean? He says, well, the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was saying, if you would ask me what are my plans, I would tell you, I don't have any dead people don't plan. If you would ask me what were my goals, I don't have any dead people don't set them. If you were to ask what is my future, I wouldn't have the slightest idea idea because dead people don't have futures. But now if you reverse the question a little bit and said, Paul, what's God's goal for you? He would say, now we can discuss that. What's God's future for you? Well, we can interact on that. Because Paul was saying that his whole identity had now been wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who he was, was no longer relevant outside of his new, divine, theocentric, Christocentric, bibliocentric orientation to life. That that had now consumed him. And that's why you couldn't intimidate Paul. They, they come up to him one day and say, well, Paul, we don't like you. We're going to kill you. Paul would say, that's cool to die his game. They come another time and say, well, since you're going to be that nonchalant about it, then, uh, then we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. That's cool to live as Christ. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. Now, since you're that, since you're that coy about the thing, then we're not going to let you live or let you die. We're just going to make you suffer. That's cool. I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed unto me. If you kill me, I'm going to live with Christ. If you let me live, I'm going to stay here and serve Christ. If you make me suffer, I'm going to get more reward from Christ. Bring it on home. It don't matter to me. It's all Christ. The sum total of his self-consciousness was to be absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be, to be a living dead thing. It means you are dead to everything that makes you you that no longer relates you to who you now are in Christ. He says the motivation for such a commitment is the mercy of God or the mercies of God. Now, by the mercies of God, he's referring to the first 11 chapters that has led him to put in this therefore. And of course, the fundamental rule of Bible study is when you see a therefore, question what it's there for. And so, based on the first 11 chapters, the mercies of God, or to use our thesis from yesterday, his grace, that that is the front-end motivation to becoming a living dead thing. Now, there is a back-end motivation, and that is the reward of faithfulness. The front-end motivation is the magnificent grace of God. 
The back-end motivation is the great reward for being faithful. He is concerned with the front-end motivation, the mercies of God, and therefore is dependent upon his thinking in the first 11 chapters in order to generate this initial burst of sacrificial commitment on behalf of the people of God. What are the mercies of the first 11 chapters to which he alludes? According to chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, the whole world is guilty before God. The Jew is guilty because he's had the oracles of God and ignored them. The moralist is guilty because he tells others to do what he does not do himself. The heathen is guilty because he's seen God clearly in nature, nature, heard him clearly in conscience, and ignored both. He concludes in verse 10 that the whole world is guilty because there's none righteous, no, not one. But beginning in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, However, God in his magnificent grace has come up with a way where apart from the law, men can be made righteous. And even though, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has come up with a genius plan in order to rectify the matter. Stringing together a series of theological concepts, he explains that plan, beginning in chapter 3, verse 24, for you were legally declared righteous, justification. It was freely by his grace, through the apolutrosis, a magnificent Greek term, lutrosis being the term for redemption, but in chapter 3, verse 24, he puts the prefix apo on it, which means redeemed and never to come up again, that God once and for all satisfied his demands against you and me by virtue of the death of his son so that according to verse 25 we were propitiated for in that God's demands were completely, irrevocably, eternally satisfied. Well then how do I get it? Chapter 4 the same way Abraham got it, by faith. For you see, verses 4 and 5 says, To the one who worketh, the reward is no longer of grace, but of debt. But to him who believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So the whole guilty world has been totally satisfied by the provisions of God through Christ, free of charge, by faith. Well, is that all? No, you've only just begun, chapter 5. For what you have lost in the first Adam, you get back in the second Adam. The first Adam took you by the hand and escorted you out of the garden. The second Adam takes you by the hand and escorts you back into the garden. Then all my problems are solved. Well, not necessarily, chapter 6 and 7. You see... It depends on whom you yield your body to that will determine whom you obey. And it is determined based on your yielding of your members that will control who you obey that will ultimately determine how much you benefit. Because this new deposit has been put in an old flesh so that you will find yourself crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? 
because you will forever have to struggle with the reality that this grace deposit has been placed in a contaminated vessel, contaminated by the presence of sin. Oh, wait a minute, Paul. The whole world is guilty. God has taken care of it, free of charge, by faith, so that I can get what I lost in the first Adam, but I may not get to experience it if I don't yield my members, but I've got my flesh that's working against me being able to yield it. What guarantee can you give me that I will be able to pull off what the grace deposit is granted? Chapter 8, for God has given us the Holy Spirit and it is the job of the Holy Spirit to take those whom God hath called to guarantee that they are then justified, to lead them so that they are glorified. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us in the way of holiness to give us victory so that the flesh does not have to win over the new deposit of the Spirit provided by the grace of God. Well, if this stuff is so great, Paul, how come Israel doesn't have it? Chapters 9 through 11. Israel doesn't have it because they didn't believe it, and when you don't believe it, you don't get it. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice for a God who saved you when he didn't have to, free of charge, gave you back what you lost, will give you victory even though the deposit is in a contaminated vessel so that we as Gentiles have what Jews don't even have. Those mercies ought to be the motivating factor for us to give all of us to all of him to become living dead people. And after all, that's a very reasonable request. In fact, it is your spiritual service of worship. You see, it's kind of incorrect to go to church to worship God. That is a faulty philosophy. Your worship, he says in the Greek term used at the end of verse 1, is your total commitment. You are to worship God. I am to worship God as a way of life, not as a Sunday ceremony. All Sunday should be is the collective gathering of those who have been worshiping God as a way of life all week long, coming together to celebrate their way of life. Secondly, he says, having given all of yourself to God, give none of yourself to the world. Be not conformed to this world. That word, conform, was used of a potter who took a piece of clay and molded it into what he wanted it to be. He would squeeze it here, press it there, manipulate it over here so that that ball or lob of clay would become a cup or saucer or a plate or a bowl. He would conform it into the image of his mind. The word cosmos comes from a Greek word where we get our English word cosmetic. And it was used of an arrangement. And so our English word cosmetic is very accurately portrayed by ladies when they put on their makeup and they say, I have to put on a face. They have to rearrange their appearance. It was an arrangement whereby it came to mean that system headed by Satan that leaves God out. 
So to be worldly is not first of all to go to a dance or to go to a movie or to hang out with the wrong crowd or to go to a club. Those things may be byproducts of it in various ways, but the core of being worldly is to adopt a philosophy that leaves God out. It's it's, it's bottom line that. And you can do that just in the way you think. When people want to know, now that I'm a Christian, can I do A, B, C, and D? That is not a very complicated answer. You can answer every question about what you can and cannot do as a Christian simply by understanding the nature of the cosmos. The cosmos, the world, has one agenda, and that is to get you to leave God out. So you know if you're worldly when you ask the question or do what you do with the understanding that what I am doing now, God is doing with me, is he having as much fun as I am? It becomes the fundamental creature or or issue, can I comfortably integrate God into my current activity? Or must I ask him to stay outside while I go in? Worldliness is leaving God out. If you are going to see the grace of God explode within you and through you, it will be because you became a living dead thing. All of you belongs to all of him. But that none of you belongs to this world order. That you refuse to extricate, <clears throat> to extricate God from your thinking, your acting, your relationships. The reason why God doesn't want Christians to marry non-Christians is because he fundamentally understands he will get left out of that deal. The reason he doesn't want business people to have joint partnerships on an equal level in business is because he knows he will get left out of that deal. And what he insists on the people that he redeem is that he not be left out of the deal. That he sits at the table. In fact, he controls who's at the table. And he becomes the driving force for our lives. Thirdly, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God must own all of you. The world must own none of you. And then an internal transformation occurs in the mind. Now what's very important grammatically is that the word transformed in the Greek is in the passive. So actually the transforming is not something you do. It is something done upon you. It is that work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about a little bit more tomorrow, that work of the Holy Spirit that reshapes your thinking. Now, the battleground here for your Christian victory, your Christian maturity, is the mind. It is not the feet and the hands. Those are simply, those are simply uh, the ones that carry it out. The battleground is the mind, because when the mind goes, everything else goes with it. The mind is to our spiritual lives what the brain is to our physical being, the control center. 
It is because of the mind or the brain that you walk where you walk, say what you say, move how you move. If something goes wrong with the brain, then you can't walk because that is the control center. Well, the Bible uses mind to spiritually parallel brain. It is the control center so that as a man thinks, that is what he is going to do and what he is going to become because something else is controlling you. So the issue on the Christian life and spiritual victory and spiritual maturity is who's running this mind. A process of transformation will occur not because you seek to transform your mind. But because you give God all of you, give the world none of you, which frees the Holy Spirit up to go over that old tape recorder with new data. Many of us have said in Bible teaching churches year after year, listen to radio ministries week after week, but find that our feet are still not changing even though we are absorbing more and more of the Bible. In fact, it is possible to graduate from Moody being more carnal than it was before you came in, yet have more doctrine, more bibliology, Christology, anthropology, pneumatology, eschatology. You will have the ability to be able to go and discover uh, our pre-lapsarian, sub-lapsarian uh, dispensational schemes taking you from the pre-diluvian generation to the revelatory one and be carnal to the tip of your toe. Because what you get in your head does not become the transformation of your life unless you have done point one and point two prior to point three. Unless God owns all of you and the world owns none of you, then what you gather in your head won't spiritually stick to your life. You must be transformed. The Holy Spirit must have freedom to reshape the mind. There is a tangible way you know that that is occurring, by the way. That is answered prayer. The more transformed you become, the more your prayers will be answered. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me, and my word abide in you, you can ask what you will and my father, <clears throat> my father will do it. Try to put that together for us on Friday. But the concept is God wants to transform your thinking, which will automatically, automatically transform your action. And then you will prove what the will of God is. You won't search for the will of God. You won't be looking for the will of God. You won't be hunting for the will of God. What you will be doing is proving it. Now, proving was used of a potter who, uh, um, excuse me, of a goldsmith who would take uh, gold and throw it into the fire to validate its authenticity. He would validate that it was gold by throwing it into the fire. And of course, that's why God gives us trials. God gives us trials in order for us to validate where we are. God gives us tests in order, not for God's purposes, but for our purposes. And other, just like you take tests in your classes, that's not for the teacher's purposes. Hopefully they know the information. The reason that you take tests in your class is for you to validate whether you know what you think you know. The will of God is validated in your life. In other words, you don't find it, it finds you and validates 
that it is what God wants. And you will discover that the will of God has three very wonderful characteristics as it is worked out for you, printed out for you. You don't have to worry about where God is going to lead you when you leave here. You don't even have to search for where God is going to lead you, but all of you must belong to all of God. None of you must belong to this word order. The Holy Spirit will then set up shop to reshape your thinking so that you will think the will of God. He will begin to work through those thinking processes so that your natural thoughts will in fact coincide with the will of God. It's just like this. Whatever God the Father thinks, Jesus the Son thinks at the same time that God the Father thinks it because Jesus and and God are one, right? Same essence. So whatever Jesus is thinking, you can bank on it that God is thinking it simultaneously. That's why Jesus says, I work, my Father works, I give life, my Father gives life. Whatever I do, my Father is doing at the same time I'm doing it because we are one. And since the Son proceeds from the Father, he only does that which glorifies the Father. Whatever Jesus the Son is thinking, the Spirit is thinking at the same time the Son is thinking it because Jesus and the Spirit are one. And the Bible says the Spirit proceeds from the Son. But the Bible also says the Spirit proceeds from the Father. So whatever the Father is thinking, Jesus is thinking at the same time the Father is thinking. Whatever Jesus is thinking, the Holy Spirit is thinking at the same time Jesus is thinking it because all three of them are one. When your mind is transformed, then you're thinking what the Holy Spirit is thinking in your mind. But the Holy Spirit is only thinking in your mind what Jesus is thinking because the Holy Spirit doesn't think anything that Jesus is not thinking. And whatever Jesus is thinking, the Father is thinking at the same time Jesus is thinking it because those three only think the same thing at the same time. So that when the Holy Spirit starts to think his thoughts in your mind, he lets you in on the Trinitarian thought pattern. So what you're thinking is what the Spirit is thinking is what Jesus is thinking is what the Father is thinking. And since when you get on your knees and pray, all you do is pray for what you think. They've got to give you what you asked for because they the one made you think it in the first place to ask for it. And then, since you're getting what you think, it is in fact the will of God. Proving itself to be three things. One is good. Good means it's the best plan that your life could ever have. There is no better plan for God's plan of outworking his grace in your life to accomplish his will than the will of God. It's good. There's nothing better. Now, everything in it may not look good, but all things are working together so that they're going to wind up good. You know, my wife, my wife is an awesome cook. And, and she's not only awesome when she's, when she's cooking something new. She has an inimical ability to take leftovers and turn them into five-star cuisines. She'll take a little bit of this that was left over, a little bit of that, throw some cream of mushroom over it. That's a, that's a miracle working soup. That cream of mushroom, I mean, mix that thing together. And I say, what is this? A new dish? She gives it some name I don't know of, so I have to cover the fact that this is stuff we didn't had all week long. And you know the beauty of the grace of God? The beauty of the grace of God is it can take leftovers. Messes, mistakes, and even turn those around 
to taste like five-star life cuisine. God takes your personality, your background, your negative experiences, even your sins, put a little cream of Jesus over it, (laughs) and makes it worth eating. Secondly, it's acceptable. When God finishes doing what he's going to do, you're going to like what he did. You may not like it now because he's not finished yet. Acceptable means when he has concluded whatever he's working on, you're going to love what he came up with. I had a young lady one time say, I'm scared to commit myself to God because I want to marry somebody tall, dark, and handsome. And in my case, definitely dark. But I want to marry somebody tall, dark, and handsome. But I'm scared if I commit my life to God, he's going to give me somebody short, bald, and fat. She understand. Whatever God works out, you're going to want it. So if he's short, bald, and fat, it's only because you fell in love with him and now you want to marry him. You see? The idea here is that when God finishes what he's doing, you're going to say, wow, my goal in life was to play pro football. That's what I want to do. That's what I live to do right now. That's stand before you. I have a steel plate in my right leg where I broke my tibia and fibula. And I remember when I got that crossbody block after I intercepted a pass and the guy hit me with a crossbody block. My cleat didn't come up out the mud. My leg snapped in half. The ambulance came up on the field. They put me in the uh, ambulance and drove me to the hospital, rushed me to emergency. And I remember thinking on my way to the hospital, Lord, I don't know why you did this. I don't understand how you did this, but, but uh, whatever your will is for my life, that's what I want. And if this is part of the thing you you're staring to, to make your will come in my life. That's fine with me. I don't like it, but I know when you finish with it, it's going to be well worth it. I wind up in the hospital, had a cast put on my foot from the top bottom of my foot up to my hip for six months. Had that cast on, and it was a very inconvenient part of my life, but I redirected my life, and I wind up going to a Bible college, and then uh, at Bible college, God worked through a set of circumstances that led me to seminary, and while I was at seminary, uh, Tom Landry called me and asked me would I speak to the Cowboys, and they kept calling me back, and then I wind up becoming chaplain for the Cowboys, and then the Mavericks came, Tom Landry talked to Norm Sanju and said, hey, uh, maybe you want this guy to speak to your team, and so I went over there, they asked me to become chaplain of the Mavericks, I'm going to be in sports longer than any of the players. What God's plan for for me was, was not what my plan, but uh, now that I see what he's done with my life, I say, "Mm mm-mm, good. (laughs) It's acceptable to me. I don't have any complaints. Finally, God's grace worked out in your life so that it accomplishes as well is perfect. That means unstoppable. Nobody can take from you what belongs to you. Nobody's going to get your job, take your ministry, marry your mate. Nobody's going nobody's to rip you off. God's will is unstoppable. When you're in his total plan because you've given him your total life, you've given the world none of your life, the Holy Spirit has reformulated your mind, you can't be stopped. You can't die at 50 if you're supposed to live to be 70. I mean, none of that can happen. His will will be completed. A little girl came to her daddy one day and said, Daddy, give me a nickel. Father Regents probably didn't have any change. He didn't pull out his wallet, didn't even have a $1 bill. He only had was a 20. He said, you've been a good girl. Here's a $20 bill. She said, no, Daddy, you promised me a nickel. He said, no, honey, you don't understand. 20 nickels make a dollar, 20 dollars make a 20. This is a lot more than what you were asking for. But she didn't understand. She said, Daddy, why won't you give me a nickel? He tried to explain it again, but then she went to a temper tantrum. Daddy, you promised me a nickel. 
And that's exactly what we do when we insist on our way. Settle for a nickel when God offers us a $20 bill. He says, here's my will. We say, where's my nickel? Here's my plan, but I want my nickel. Over in the Indian Ocean, they have monsoon and typhoon winds. When an inexperienced captain gets caught in there, he tries to break the storm, go outside of the storm. But what he doesn't understand is that those winds cross, and, and those winds have been known to, to, because they're going in different directions at the same time, tear a boat apart. But an experienced captain, you know what he does? He moves his vessel to the center of the storm. Because while it's rough riding, the winds pull in the same direction at the center of the storm, and the eye of the storm always moves toward land. So that that experienced captain, when he gets to the eye of the storm, even though he's bumped around a little bit, turns off his motor and lets the eye of the storm pull him to land. That's how the will of God is. You try to break it and do your own thing, you're going to wind up broken. But if you maneuver to the center of it, you can turn off your worry motor, your irritation motor, your acerbation motor, your frustration motor, and let the will of God pull you the way you're supposed to be. You see, spiritual growth is guaranteed, but it is not automatic. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week in 1993. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.